Good morning. Okay, so we're in the book of James, and we are working our way through, looking specifically at some things James says about various pressure points in life. It's not the only thing James talks about, but that's what we're highlighting as we work our way through the book. And what it looks like to be a believer in Jesus when you, re- when you experience pressure in your life and how you respond to that um, and, and responding the way uh, God wants us to respond. And the, the particular pressure point we're going to be looking at today is the pressure point of conflict. James is going to confront us with some truth about handling conflict or understanding conflict and dealing with conflict. When I use the word confront, I'm using that word very deliberately. Uh, If you've been with us through this series at all or if you read through James, you know that James is a very confrontational writer. He's about as subtle as a two-by-four to the face. And uh, when he sees people who claim to be believers in Jesus living in ways that contradict that claim, he does not hesitate to call them out. Now, that's not usually fun. Um, you know, most of us don't like to be confronted. Um, it's, it, you know, it, it might provoke some, you know, defensive reactions in us. And I just want to encourage you, if you start feeling defensive, uh, k- keep something in mind here, okay? Remember, this is Scripture, So ultimately, this is not merely the word of James. This is ultimately the word of God. And when God says hard things to us, when God confronts us, he always does it because he loves us. He loves us. Revelation 3.19, Jesus said, Those whom I love, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. It is a sign of his love for us when he confronts us. Just as if you're a parent and you need to confront your children at times with things in their lives or things they're doing that are going to hurt them or hurt others and you confront them, you do it because you love them. And God does the same thing with us. When he confronts us with stuff in our lives that's going to hurt us or hurt others, it's a sign of his love for us. So (laughs) with that in mind... Let me encourage you to buckle up because here comes another two by four of God's love. It's coming right at you. So we're in James chapter four. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, James four, or the passage will be on the screen and on the note sheet in your folder. Here we go. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Okay, let's just stop there. Um, you might think, really? Murder? In the church? It's like, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly why James used that word. I'm hoping that he's speaking metaphorically like his half-brother, our Lord Jesus, when Jesus was confronting people who thought they were keeping the Ten Commandments because they didn't kill anybody. And Jesus said, you know, just not killing anybody, that doesn't really fulfill that commandment about you shall not murder. If you have hatred in your heart or you insult your brother, that's, that makes you guilty. So I think that's what he means. I hope so. 
but he says it. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Okay, so he brings up conflicts and right out of the gate, James lets us know that the apparent problem is not the real problem. Quarrels, arguments with fellow Christians, those things aren't the core problem. They're a symptom of the core problem. And that's why he doesn't say, oh, oh, you're having conflicts? You're arguing with one another? Okay, stop it. Just stop. Stop arguing with one another and everything will be fine. He doesn't do that. See, that would be kind of like if a red light comes on your dashboard, a warning light, and you disconnect it. Because you say, hey, that, that red light, that's really annoying me. That bothers me. That red light is a problem I need to turn that light off. No, the red light is not the problem. The problem is under the hood somewhere. Turning the light off isn't going to fix it. And in the same way, you cannot fix conflicts by just turning off the light, by turning off the conflict, by, for example, avoiding certain people. The real problem, the real problem is not the red light of conflict. The real problem's under the hood that's causing the conflict. Something down there, that's what we've got to deal with. So basically, James is popping the hood on our lives and showing us what's going on beneath the conflict. That's what we have to deal with. So if you're a Christian, and if you're not, I'm really glad you're here, and I hope you're feeling welcome because uh, I would, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that God will lead anyone in that point and on your journey to get to the place where you say yes to Jesus Christ. But if you are a Christian and you're in a conflict with somebody or you occasionally have conflicts with someone, I really want you to encourage you to, to ask God if, if any of this applies to you. Because I think there's a tendency we have. It's like we think our situation is unique. And the conflicts we have are unique, and so yeah, this doesn't really apply to my situation. That's almost never true, that our situation is one of a kind. And conflicts are seldom 100% one-sided. Maybe, you know, that might happen, but it usually doesn't. So I just encourage you, as we look at this diagnosis James gives us for conflicts and what's going on under the hood, be willing to deal with whatever your part of it is even if it's just a little bit, and ask God to help you receive that.
Okay, so we're going to consider James' diagnosis for conflict. Here's, here's the first part of it. When you have a conflict, realize you probably want something you shouldn't want. You probably want something you shouldn't want. In other words, you have a desire that you cannot legitimately fulfill. James says, quarrels and fights are caused by passions within you. He says, you desire and do not have. He says, you covet and you cannot obtain. So there's this desire, there's this unfulfilled desire that's driving this conflict in some way, and you can't legitimately fulfill the desire. Maybe because it's outside of your control. Notice he says, <clears throat> you don't have because you don't ask. Okay, think about it. If you have to ask for something, that means you can't make it happen on your own. It's beyond your control. Maybe it's something like, well, you want somebody to treat you a certain way. You want them to treat you with love and respect or admiration or whatever, and they're not doing it. <clears throat> or maybe you want something to happen in your life. And you can't make it happen. There's some circumstance you want to happen or some circumstance you want to change and you can't do it. Here's the reality, though. When we try to control things that we can't control, people, circumstances, whenever we try to control things we can't control, it almost always leads to conflict. Almost always. See, those are things, if we can't control them, those are things we have to ask God about. We have to ask Him for and we have to trust Him. And if we're not willing to ask, if we're not willing to ask God, what, what is that saying? It, that probably means we think He doesn't want us to have it. And if we think he doesn't want us to have it, then we probably shouldn't want it either. There's another possibility, and that is that we're asking, we are asking God, and he keeps saying no. Because it's not his will for you. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That is, you're desiring something that God says no to. No. It's a bad desire. Or possibly it's a good desire, but the way you want to fulfill that desire is, is not good. You want to fulfill it in a bad way. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's say you desire more income. Well, if you desire it just so you can live in greater luxury and you're really not caring about anybody else's needs, then that's a bad desire. If it's just for you to experience greater luxury, that's not a desire that God's going to say yes to. Or, or, let's say you desire more income, and it's a good desire because you, well, you want that so you can take better care of your family's needs and, and maybe have more to give. Well, that's a good desire. But if your way of getting more income is stealing, robbing banks, uh, ripping people off, cheating on your taxes, well, those aren't legitimate ways of getting it. And so you can ask God all you want, and he's going to say no. So you see what I mean? 
Either, either desire is bad or the way you want to go around fulfilling it is bad. So how do we know, how do we know if, if something we desire, if that's, if that's a good desire or not, or if the way we want to fulfill it is legitimate? Well, obviously, the first thing we need to do is see if God's word says anything about that. Because if it does, there's our answer. God's word as, as explained and interpreted authoritatively to us by the Lord Jesus. But let's face it, a lot of things that we might desire aren't necessarily addressed by the Bible. What then? Well, if we're in doubt, here's the question to ask. Would fulfilling this desire in this way be a loving thing as God defines love. Not as our world defines love, not even necessarily how we would define what's loving, but as God defines it. Something that is genuinely in the best interests of others. That's the question to ask. Would it be loving? Romans 13.8, look at this. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Remember when, when somebody asked Jesus, hey, you know, the Bible's a big book. Could you just boil it all down to us? And he said, yeah, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they're summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So if it's not a loving thing that you want, then you want something you shouldn't want. And trying to fulfill that desire will almost inevitably lead to conflict. Okay, so when you have a conflict... Realize you're probably wanting something you shouldn't want. Okay, but we need to go deeper. It's the second part of this. When you want something you shouldn't want, realize you probably don't want God enough. When you want something you shouldn't want, you probably don't want God enough. Now, stay with me here, because this might not seem obvious at first, but when you begin to see the connection, it, it's powerful. Okay, notice verse 4. Right after telling us that the reason we have conflicts is that we're wanting things we shouldn't want, he says, you adulterous people. That's the two-by-four. I'd say... Wait, what? Adulterous? How does that make sense? Okay, I can see how me wanting something that's unloving would lead to conflicts, and I can see why God wouldn't want me to do that. How does that make me guilty of adultery? You know what adultery is. Adultery is when you're married and you're seeking sexual satisfaction with someone other than you're married to. That's adultery. So what, how does this make sense? Okay, well, first of all, we've got to understand it's spiritual adultery that he's talking about. That is unfaithfulness to God. 
James is doing the very same thing that the prophets of the Old Testament did when they confronted the people of God who were being unfaithful to God. He was they're picturing the covenant relationship between God and his people like a marriage, and the people were being unfaithful to their husband, God. And so you get you get passages like Jeremiah 3.20, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Okay, so spiritual adultery, being unfaithful to God, okay. But still, how does wanting things we shouldn't want, that is, wanting unloving things that lead to conflict, how is that being unfaithful to God? And here's the explanation. Because what it means is that we're probably looking for a satisfaction in other things that we should be looking for in God. Think about it. Think about it. If God says no to something, either you know, directly in his word or the thing you want, he's not giving you. If God says no to something, but I say, ha, Yes, I want it anyway. In fact, I have to have it. I have to have it to be satisfied. I have to have it to be complete. I have to have it to be okay. Then at that point, I'm seeking my ultimate satisfaction for my soul, not in God, but in someone or something else. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. Making someone or something else into a substitute for God and what he alone can provide. Something you put your hope into to make your life complete, but it's not God. Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. It's great. But he he raises this issue. He asks the question, what is an idol? Now listen to his answer. An idol is anything that is more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what God alone can give you. Now, what what might that be? Well, it could be anything. And it's usually a good thing. See, that's the thing we think, idols, you know, idols are bad. Actually, idols are usually good things. Listen to what he says. The human heart takes good things, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family. We take good things and we turn them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them, make gods out of them. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security and safety and fulfillment if we can attain them. Turning something good, a good thing, into an ultimate thing. So good things, good things like marriage, sexual intimacy, Good career, good job, 
possessions, success at work, success at school, friendship, respect, health, a house, a secure retirement, a safe neighborhood, whatever. Things that we should receive as undeserved gifts from God, but then we take them and we turn them into ultimate things, things that we can't be happy without. In other words, I don't just want that, I need it. I must have that. I can't be happy without it. I've got to have it to be satisfied. And at that point, we've made it an idol. What does that have to do with conflict? Simply this. If you have an idol and somebody messes with it, conflict. So, if I have to have your acceptance, I mean, I have to have it to be okay, and you don't give it to me, conflict. Or if I have to have your cooperation to be successful, and I've got to be successful to be okay, and you don't cooperate, conflict. If I have to have your love or your respect, and you withhold it, and I've got to have your love and respect to be okay, we're going to have a conflict. If you're a parent, and as a parent, I must have my children turn out a certain way, and I must have them do certain things, and they fail me, conflict. And on it goes. Do you see how this works? The root problem in conflict is not just that our desires are messed up, It's that our desires are messed up because they're disconnected from God. Jeremiah 2. Now this is a little different picture than spiritual adultery, but it's the same idea. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You know what a cistern is? It's a tank in the ground. They would dig a pit and they would line it with rock and limestone cement and things and and that would catch rainwater and that's what they would use in a very arid climate. And God is saying, I'm the spring of living water. I'm all the satisfaction for your soul that you need. And you're, you're, you're walking away from me and you're going to a tank in the ground that's broken and dry and you're trying to get satisfied with that when we seek our deepest soul satisfaction in anything but god we're never satisfied we're never satisfied we're trying to drink from a broken dry cistern and here's the thing conflicts are a symptom of that conflicts are a symptom that we're trying to find satisfaction where we shouldn't. We're trying to make friends with the world. The world offers us all kinds of idols that promise us ultimate satisfaction and they never deliver. 
They just don't. You, know, you try to make someone else in your life the source of your ultimate satisfaction, you're going to drive them crazy. They're going to get angry. They're going to get frustrated because they can't be God for you. Nobody can except God. But the flip side is the really good news. God is the fountain of living water, and he says, come to me and drink. If you will seek your deepest soul satisfaction in Christ, then you will have the unconditional, unending, perfect love that your soul craves. You'll have all the love and approval and significance that you will ever need in Jesus and when you have that in Him, then you don't have to demand it from anybody else. It's okay to want that from people, but it's a very different thing to demand it. You know, do I want love and respect from the people in my life? Of course I do. Of course you do. And if you don't get it, it's going to be disappointing. It's going to hurt. But here's the thing. If you ultimately have the love and acceptance and approval you need in Christ, that that which hurts does not destroy. So, what are the idols you're tempted to worship? We all are. Let's just be honest. We all have things that we tend to look to to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. What are those for you? Well, here's one way you can find out. Here's a little exercise you can do. How would you complete this statement? In order for my life to be complete, I must have fill in the blank. What would you put there? Be honest. If your honest answer is anything other than Jesus Christ, then whatever that thing is for you that's an idol and you just need to know, sooner or later, it's going to let you down. Because it cannot bear the weight of your worship. It just can't. One of the ways God is described in the Bible, and here in our passage in verse 6, God is described as a jealous God. Now, look at Exodus 34, 14. Here's just one example. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, that usually bothers us when we read stuff like that, or bothers many of us, because our experience with jealousy is, is just negative. It's negative. I mean, jealous people are insecure. Jealous people are needy. Jealous people are demanding. Jealous people drive us crazy. But God is different. His jealousy is not like that, because God's not needy. God's not, you know, insecure in needs our worship for him to be happy. God's jealousy is a perfect loving jealousy. The reason he wants our ultimate devotion is not because that meets a need in his being, but because it meets the deepest need in ours. He wants us to be devoted to him for our own good. God is the only being in the universe for whom self-centeredness is a virtue. Anybody else is self-centered, it's a sin, but not for God, because God is the ultimate good. And so, he wants you to love him 
above all other things because he knows that alone will give you lasting satisfaction and joy. He knows if you put anything else in his place, you will never be truly, lastingly happy. So whatever you filled in the blank, Now, I want you to think about what this means. Okay, let's just, you know, reduce it down to the basics here. Uh, You know, what does it mean that God is a jealous God? It means he really loves you. He really loves you. I don't know if you feel that, but that is the truth. God really loves you. I've heard that so many times my whole life. And I finally realized that every time I heard that, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I know God loves me. God has to. He's God. He has to love me. And then to realize, no, he actually loves me. That blows my mind. Look at John 17, 23. He loves you more He loves you more than you dare hope. He loves you more than you love your children. He loves you more than you love, you know, your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, your children, anybody in your life. He loves you more than you love them. John 17, 23. Jesus is praying for his disciples. And we know because of what he says in verse 20, that he's praying also not just for the 12 disciples right in front of him, but for all those who would believe in him through their words. So if you're a believer in Jesus today, this includes you. And he prays this, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you loved me. Do you realize what that is saying? I I can't get my head around this that is saying that god loves us with the same love that he loves jesus take that home and think about it for a while okay we need to move from diagnosis to cure so the problem at the root of it is not wanting god enough Well, the solution then would be to want God more. How do you do that? What do you do when you don't want God enough? What do you do? Well, I'm going to give you some things that I'm going to pull out of James here. I have to be brief, but I think these would be really great things to talk about with one another, talk about with your friends, talk about in your small group or whatever group of believers you get together with. Okay, what do you do? You don't want God enough. You want other stuff more than you want God. What do you do? First, remind yourself that he's gracious. Remind yourself he's gracious. He gives more grace. Elsewhere, Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. You realize grace means it's God's nature to give. It's his nature to give. And it's his nature to give lavishly, extravagantly. And he gives because we need it, not because we deserve it. And you know what we, deserve? <laughs> you know what we need? We need forgiveness. 
We need forgiveness for loving other things more than God. God calls you adulterous because he loves you, because he wants you to turn around, because he wants you to let go of your stupid idols, and he wants you to turn to him and find in him what you need the most, and what you need most is him. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Remind yourself that God is gracious. He knows what your idols are. And his heart is to pull you away from those and forgive you and give you what you really need. He's gracious. His, his, his posture toward you is of giving lavishly what you need the most. Second, put his, put his will above your will. Verse 7, submit yourselves to God. So, Unless what you want is just flat out wrong, by all means, ask God for it. But then when you ask him for it, do what Jesus did in the garden the night before he was crucified as he was praying to the Father, let there be another way. And he said, yet, not my will, but your will be done. God always knows what's best and he always wants what's best for us even when we don't understand, and we often don't. But put his will above your will. Third, don't tell yourself you can't change. Don't tell yourself you can't help it. You've got these desires you can't legitimately fulfill, and it's just, you know, you can't help it. You can't change. That's not true. We tell ourselves that, but it's not true. Where do I get that? Verse 7 says, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Now think about that. The devil is the epitome of evil. If you can say no to him, and you can, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you can say no to him, then you can say no to any evil desire that tempts you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's ever going to get easy. It doesn't ever mean that those desires will just vanish. But don't tell yourself you have to give in to those desires because you don't. You can say no to the devil. You can say no to anything. Four, get serious about pursuing God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How serious are we about drawing near to God? say, well, what, what do you do? How do you draw near to God? You give Him your attention. You make it a priority. You, you read His Word and you ask Him to reveal Himself to you, to speak to you. You ask Him to make you aware of His presence. You meet with other people who are serious about seeking Him. You say no to things that would lead you away from Him? I'll give you one practical thing. Oh, and you give yourself to His agenda. I forgot that one. Here's a practical idea. 
that I recommend. Pray the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. See, because what the Psalms do is they give us a vocabulary. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray. We don't even know what to say to God and how to express a, a desire to draw near to Him. And the Psalms give us a vocabulary for doing that. Look at Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And you might say, well, I, my soul is not thirsty for God. Yes, it is. You just think it's thirsty for something else. It's really thirsty for God. So grab that vocabulary and use it. Psalm 72, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth I desire besides or apart from you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Keep praying those till they become more and more true for you. Just realize we can't love a God we don't know. We need to get to know Him better. So, Get serious about pursuing God. And finally, live with confidence in what God will do. Live with confidence in what God will do. Look at this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Do you realize God did not have to give us that promise? It could have just said, humble yourselves before God because it's the right thing to do. God is God. You're not. Humble yourself and quit whining. That's what it could have said. And it would be absolutely true. And God doesn't give us that. He gives us, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you. That's a promise. Christians ought to be ridiculously enthusiastic about the future. <laughs> and when we're not, it's because we're forgetting what our future is. We ought to be so excited. Yeah, I realize there, you know, there are going to be times when we're grieved and we're sorrowing, but beneath it somewhere, there's got to be this expectation that Jesus is going to do what He promised. That He's going to come back. He's going to rid this world. I want to say of politicians, but... <laughs> I think that's true. Rid this world of every injustice, every sorrow. He's going to transform us, he says. He's going to make our bodies like his. And we're going to reign with him forever if we know him. We don't ever really have a good reason for feeling sorry for ourselves. Yes, there are things that are going to break our hearts. Yes, there are things that are going to grieve us. But as it says in 1 Thessalonians, we're to grieve as those, not as those who don't have hope. Hope. In Christ, our future is beyond awesome. Beyond awesome. So live with confidence. So I think James is telling us, if we'll do these things, then we'll be less inclined to be adulterous seeking satisfaction in things other than God, and we will seek our satisfaction in God. So that we seek pleasure in God and everything, and everything in God. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this hard word. I have been guilty of unfaithfulness to you so many times. And I have gotten in conflicts because I wasn't seeking my satisfaction in you and I was demanding from people what they couldn't give to me or were unwilling to give to me, but what I should have been looking to you for in the first place. Lord, will you help us turn from that? Will you help us repent? Will you help us turn away from the idols and turn to you for you are God and you have done for us in Christ what is absolutely breathtakingly beautiful and you are beautiful. Help us see your beauty and remember who you are Help us live in light of your promises. And Lord, if there's anybody here who has yet to take that step of saying yes to your offer of eternal life and forgiveness and deep soul satisfaction in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day they would say yes to you. And Father, help us live as people of hope. People who do not get angry and frustrated about the way the world is going, but instead are broken-hearted dispensers of grace who are eager and longing for Jesus to return. May we live that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.